Welcome to the Predictable Designs Podcast, where it's all about creating and selling successful new electronic hardware products. Here's your host, engineer and entrepreneur, John Till. Welcome to the Predictable Designs Podcast, where we discuss all things related to developing, manufacturing, marketing, and selling successful new electronic hardware products. I'm your host, John Teal. Today, I'm speaking with Mike Morana and Sean Liddington. Mike started a successful medical device company called AdhereTech back in 2012, whose core product is a smart bottle that helps to ensure patients take their medicine on schedule. The product is now used by tens of thousands of patients. Mike is also a mechanical engineer with massive experience working with manufacturers and suppliers. Also on the call today is Sean Lennington. Sean is an electrical engineer who happens to be one of the best electronics designers I've worked with. In the past, Sean worked for Compact Computer and BlackBerry, and now he does full-time consulting. In addition to electronics design, Sean also has a lot of experience evaluating manufacturers and suppliers. In fact, that's the topic of our call today, evaluating manufacturers and suppliers. So welcome to the show, Mike and Sean. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have both of you. Um, both of you are really active in the, in the Hardware Academy community, and that's what inspired this conversation is someone in there had asked about for suggestions on evaluating and assessing uh, potential manufacturers and suppliers. And I had I had shared my my suggestions, and then both of you had uh, stepped up and uh, really provide a, a ton of value. I didn't realize that both of you have massive experience in evaluating and assessing suppliers. Uh, Mike has a, a very detailed questionnaire with roughly 100 to 150 questions for suppliers. That's very detailed, and then. Uh, Sean also has put together a questionnaire with questions that he recommends for evaluating suppliers. And I'm in the process of combining those two together to create a, a questionnaire that will be in the uh, resources section of the academy. So I hope to have that here in the next week or so. Um, so thank you both so much for, first of all, chiming in on the in the forum and answering the, the question. Um, it's I have a decent amount of experience in this area, but not near the level that, that you guys, uh, both of you do. So I thought this would be really good uh, since we're already all working, three of us were working together on a, a questionnaire for suppliers. I thought it would be good to jump on a call and sort of run through, we can't go through all the different questions, but just sort of talk about some general advice and tips for selecting manufacturers and suppliers. So. I think this will be a, a really good call. Um, this will be the, the first podcast I've done with uh, interviewing two people. So hopefully that, that goes well and we don't, we don't talk too much over each other, but um, I think, I think it will be okay. I'm going to go ahead and just quickly start with sharing just a, a few of my suggestions on assessing a manufacturer or supplier. And then, uh, then I'll also, then I'll, uh, ask Sean and Mike both to share well their thoughts on my suggestions if they have any and then also some of their top tips or top questions that they recommend for evaluating a supplier. So uh, and I'll just kind of run through a couple of mine uh, fairly quickly. I don't want to get too detailed on mine. I'm kind of interested in hearing what Mike and Sean have to say but I just wanted to touch on the suggestions that I had in the form. And my first suggestion was to always ask a manufacturer exactly how they plan to do something and not just if they can do it. From my experience, manufacturers will commonly say yes to just about anything, but uh, so you have to be careful of that, them not necessarily lying, but always being overly positive. So it's best to ask for details of how they plan to do something and not just whether they can do something. Another tip when speaking with Chinese manufacturers is to make sure that you're actually speaking with the manufacturer and not some middle person because uh, that, that's really common. People will present themselves as the, as the manufacturer of the product, but they're really just a, a distributor um, for that manufacturer. So it's always best to make sure that you're actually dealing with the manufacturer directly. Um, my third tip is to always get uh, samples of similar products that they've done. 
Um, I think that's always a, a key for any supplier manufacturers. You want to you want to request samples and see the uh, products similar to what you're doing or the components that they're supplying. Then my fourth tip is to always get referrals when possible for manufacturers and suppliers. And this is something we have in the academy. There's a couple hundred manufacturers and suppliers that are listed in there that either I've personally used or members have used and recommended. And a lot of these, I, I will say, Mike Morano on the call, uh, these were companies that he's worked with and recommended. So thank you for that, Mike. I, that that sure. provides a, a lot of value. There was, uh, I don't remember the number of manufacturers, but there were quite a few that you had listed and had worked with and recommended. So that that's really helpful. Um, then my other suggestion was to sort of, and you know, I know Mike has also got a, sort of a way of doing this is evaluating their in, the interest level of the manufacturer and just how uh, how interested they are in your product and, and working with you. If for my own case, I had found a manufacturer <laughs> that really liked my product and they were able to um, they they uh, liked it, so they were willing to end up offer me financing and really great payment terms. So that was really huge. If they, if they hadn't liked the product and seen the, uh, that I had customers interested and I'd salespeople and everything, then I don't think they would have uh, been willing to give me the, the type of terms that they did. Mm-hmm. And those are kind of the, the main ones that, that I've got. Uh, so I, I, it's just kind of a few that are kind of general and high level things to, to start your investigation or evaluation of the manufacturer. Uh, as, as I think we'll probably talk about these questionnaires. Like I said, Mike's had a, over 100 questions. So it's not the way you're going to want to start your first communication with the, manuf- with the supplier or manufacturer. You're obviously going to need to have some warm dialogue and get them interested before you uh, start telling them to spend hours completing out uh, all your questions and documentation. So um, let's uh, maybe go ahead and uh, let me uh, start with Mike. Um, Well, first of all, do either of you have any feedback or comments on any of the tips that I just suggested before, before I start uh, seeing what individual uh, questions or tips that you guys have? I guess um, my one piece of feedback would be that like for people that are going to be listening to this podcast, you know, a lot of the things that, you know, we're talking about are really framed from like a electromechanical product. And that's the, that's the frame of reference that I'm speaking from. And when you're thinking about evaluating the right partner to make that type of product, there's a, you know, a, a myriad of different types of suppliers that are involved but uh, typically there's usually one point of contact that you're going to hire, which is like a contract manufacturer. And they may have a different series of skills um, and they may do some of the product. They may do all of the product. They may have, they're going to have suppliers and really what the point of the questionnaire is and sort of what I think the point of this discussion is, is uh, you know, how do you evaluate them after you've made your first pass of who you want to work with? Maybe you've already found a contract manufacturer, but they don't do electronics manufacturing, right? They just do assembly uh, and they have a supplier and you need to figure out if that supplier meets your needs um, or maybe they have several. Um, so that's sort of like the frame of reference that I'm thinking about is uh, there's like this journey that you take. You uh, obviously have to reach out to people, get referrals, all the things you just spoke about. And then when you have like sort of a working understanding of the level of interest, then you can use things like questionnaires and supplier assessments and visits to really identify uh, their capability and their quality and if they're the right match for what you need. So I just wanted to comment on sort of like the frame of reference in which I will be speaking. No, that's a great point. Yeah, I think for everyone listening to this in general, we're assuming (laughs) electromechanical. uh, So both uh, mechanical, which for most products is just at the enclosure and then obviously the electronics. And I know Mike had two questionnaires for one for electronics manufacturers and one for enclosure manufacturers. And so this can be varied as kind of Mike hinted at, you may have a, a supplier that's supplying your PCBs and then another supplier that's 
supplying your enclosures and then you have a, a third that's your contract manufacturer who takes those pieces and put it together but you may also eventually have one company that does all this so i think that's a, yeah that, that's a great point uh was there anything you any feedback on any of the points i made sean that you have yeah, my, my only thing is, um, you know, like talk to your suppliers, whether it's by voice or by email, and you can you can quickly judge their interest in uh, in you by how fast they respond to you or how thoroughly they respond to you. If they are very interested in what you're trying to do, they would respond very fast and they would respond very thoroughly. If not, then you would find that they're dragging their feet, and uh, that's usually a telltale sign that, you know, like they are kind of lukewarm to your proposal, right? And also get WhatsApp, uh, get uh, uh, the uh, WeChat, because like most uh, of the Chinese companies, they have a, um, you know, like they have WeChat, right? They don't use pretty much anything else other than maybe Skype, but mostly it's WeChat. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, that's always, uh, the communication is always an issue when dealing with uh dealing with China, just the, the time difference. And it almost always, uh, my experience is it's almost always best to communicate in written form, just the, the language barriers and just having a, a track record of, of everything that's been said is always really helpful. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, so let's, so we kind of reviewed my, my, uh, my couple questions or uh, tips and I've got a couple more, but I feel like you, these are going to overlap somewhat with what you guys have to say. So, like I said, I know with eat, there's over probably 150 questions between the two of you to ask suppliers. So I don't want to go through all that. So I've kind of just asked each of you to to maybe highlight five or so of the the questions or the types of questions or even just general tips that you have. So um, let's maybe go ahead and start with you, Mike. I don't know if you want to start with the electronics or the enclosure, or you can, you can start whichever way you want or, uh, yeah. Sure. So. Yeah. So, um, I guess from, we'll start with electronics. Um, the, one of the first things I, I always ask, I mean, I guess in general, any supplier, I always ask just like generally what the size of their business is, uh, how many employees they have, how much, how many like market verticals they operate in. Are they, consumer electronics company or they medical they focus on medical industrial um and that's just you know how many locations do they operate um and that gives you sort of just an idea of like the relative size of the company because um you'd be surprised at the the varying <laughs> depth of, of sizes of businesses that all do the same type of stuff um and then specifically for electronics uh the first thing i always ask is how many smt lines they have um Typically, this gives you an indication of like really their throughput. Um, if it's a company that has less than that has less than like three, they're a very small business, and most of their business is going to be uh, high what's called high mix. So their equipment is going to be designed for changing out uh, for different customers, uh, and it's going to be designed for you know small runs. Whereas a company that may have uh, 10 SMT lines, they're probably going to have eight of those be dedicated to customers and two of those to be like high mix. So multiple customers on one line. Uh, and that, that quickly gives you a picture of um, what sort of businesses they're looking to go after. You know, if they have more than 10 SMT lines, they're probably a very high volume uh, electronics manufacturer. And they're really going to be difficult for you to get a working relationship with because they're, you know, you know, suited up to run continuously for a lot of customers. Um, so that's definitely like the first question I always ask, like, you know, how many SMT lines do you have? Um, and then, you know, without going into too much detail, like some of the other additional, um, you know, process electronics manufacturing processes, specifically like uh, different types of soldering equipment. So one thing, um, you know, there's typically surface mount technology, then there's, um, uh, through-hole technology, which everyone's probably familiar with, uh, and obviously those require two different sets of equipment. And um, in the through-hole world, there's usually either like wave soldering or uh, what's called selective soldering, um, and that sort of gives you the idea that, or or hand soldering, you know, just by hand uh, or robotic soldering. Um, 
those give you kind of the idea of their capability quickly is uh, what sort of through hole soldering technology do they have? They may not have any at all. Uh, some companies are really like, you know, coming over to only surface mount. And then um, the last thing that I would say about um, electronics manufacturers, like the last big question I ask is what sort of automated inspection equipment do they have? Um, I would never work with any electronics manufacturer that did not have automated optical inspection. Um, it's totally affordable equipment and it's uh, a game changer for surface mount technology. Uh, so you, you kind of have to have that for me to select you. And then um, additional uh, nice to have are like automated solder paste and uh, x-ray is really something that um, is, is valuable for parts that are have really high pin counts or high density pitch. Uh, parts. So uh, that's pretty much, those are the main questions that I would go after uh, electronics manufacturer. And then I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Um, also asking a little bit about how they like manage supply chain. Um, a lot of what a lot of electronics, electronics manufacturers are going to do for you is uh, not only, you know, maybe build your circuit boards, assemble your circuit boards, but also source uh, all the components. And uh, if you're have ever done this before there's always going to be changes to that and there's always going to be stock that goes over and uh, or there would be shortages and alternate parts and just sort of understanding how they manage that is is going to be something that you're going to have to be involved in once you start working with them. okay yeah excellent excellent um so i have a just a, a few follow-up questions based on the, some of the points that you just made as far as the sort of evaluating the size by the number of SMT uh, production lines that they have, do you, do you in general, since you'd mentioned that if they have, say, 10 lines, then most likely they're set up for high manufacturing with bigger customers, so they're not going to give you any the attention that you deserve or want to be work, willing to work with you. So in a case like that, do you generally recommend, think it's better to, try to still find companies like that so you have a company that you can grow into or is it better to smart with start with a company with fewer lines do some low volume production with them get all yeah. things smoothened out and then eventually transition to uh, a larger uh, manufacturer yeah i suppose and it depends on what your ultimate goal is if you're going to be a company that's building like uh, equipment or machines where you're you know you're going to build a, a thousand circuit boards a year um, and that's doing well, right? Like if that's, if that's the definition of doing well, then you're, you're not going to want to go to a company that is going to be tooled up for volume production. In my, in my opinion, again, this is mostly my opinion, but, um, but if, you know, if, if you're real, if, if success, the definition of success is a high volume product that you're going to make, you're going to want to try and target a company that has that capability and, and try and sh shoot a little bit over what you need so that you can grow into it. Um, you know, my in the past i've worked with manufacturers that had sort of a, a mix of mostly high volume lines and then a few what are called high mix lines and uh you know to this day we're still on the high mix lines but um that's because their, their equipment is so fast uh changing over and that technology is really you know has come a long way but not every manufacturer has that and some of these lines are a little bit harder to change over to a different customers products um, so I definitely recommend you know, picking a manufacturer that you can kind of grow into, but um, I wouldn't I wouldn't discount anyone uh, based on their size. It's just it, it's it's to give you a good sense of how big they are. You, there's some I'm sure Sean can attest to it. There's some Chinese manufacturers will have uh, you know 40 SMT lines, and your business then might be really small uh, starting off. But if eventually you could be a company that would occupy one. Uh, that would be something they would be interested in. Gotcha. I did your trajectory with yeah. your own product. Uh, Cause mm -hmm. you were in the, the first uh, podcast episode. Mm -hmm. um, didn't you, I, I recall that you ended up landing a, a pretty large manufacturer, either like a tier one or tier two manufacturer that has a really uh, like it's world-class reputation. Mm -hmm. yep. it, it was, is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it's obviously a deal if you can, if you have, if you can get the attention of a larger company that one that you can grow into uh, mm -hmm. that that's kind of the strategy I went with my own company or my own uh, manufacturer. They weren't really set up for small volume production. They were set up to, you know, make hundreds of thousands or millions of units. Um, so uh, 
Okay. Um, my other question was uh, just kind of random. You'd mentioned uh, inspection equipment and having, they definitely need to have optical inspection equipment. Is that some, have you seen electronics manufacturers that don't even have optical inspection equipment? Um, I have, I've seen ones where they do not have automated optical inspection equipment. Um, I don't know, Sean, if you've ever seen any of yeah, that at all. Most of the SMT lines these days have like automated uh, optical inspection. Um, yeah, I've seen one as well where they had they had a camera and then they had people kind of like look over that. And if he's uh, you know like if that person is feeling sleepy on that day or something, then they might miss a few uh, a few things, right? So, but but most SMT lines already have. Automated optical inspection built in, so I'm um, like, you know, it should it should be it should be there. It should be part of it. That's it. Right, exactly. It should be there. That's sort of what I was meaning to say. Yeah, that's kind of okay. Okay, yeah. just to confirm, that's kind of what I thought and had always assumed. Um, my last question is, you had mentioned uh, the supply chain and whether uh, they there's I guess two options. They well, yeah, I guess the two options are. They, they do all the supply chain management, so they source all the components, or possibly you can do it. Um, I, I, that's what, and maybe that's not practical in a lot of cases. For my product, I chose early on to do all the uh, sourcing all the components myself because I, I just wanted to have maximum control over all the components that were being made. Mm-hmm. And then my plan was eventually, once I it had relationships with all these suppliers and got all the little uh, little kinks worked out of everything. Then I was going to transition over to having the manufacturer handle all the supply chain. Um, do you either of you have any thoughts on that? Or yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, you know, when it comes to like getting launched, like you need to be involved a lot, especially for components that are what I would call like are unique or harder to get. A lot of times you're developing a new product, like it's centered around something new um, that isn't necessarily like readily available. Like let's say uh, Text Instruments comes out with a new sensor that you've never, that has never existed before and is just going into production in the next quarter. Um, obviously, you know, you can't really ask a manufacturer to go get that because it's probably not available, right? So maybe you've been working with Text Instruments for the last, you know, months and really been digging into their data sheets and getting information from their sales teams or what have you and like you've identified that you need 100 pieces to a, do a pilot build um, you're going to have to go get those parts and provide them to whoever is going to do your <laughs> electronics assembly but eventually you don't want to uh, be doing that right you want to get away yeah from no, that. no yeah and you want to really use so honestly these these companies that are going to do this they have more buying power than you'll ever have Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. Like I've worked with contract manufacturers that automatically get 10% discount through DigiKey, right? Like they're just paying 10% less than you would, even for the same, even for the same low quantity, um, because they do so much business with them every year and millions of dollars of business, right? So um, like right there, you're getting cost savings just by having someone else buy the same quantity of parts that you would do. Um, so that's, that's sort of the way I approach it is like, what are those critical parts? You need to manage those really early on. And then, you know, make sure that your bomb is clean and organized and then let them go manage purchasing. And because really what you want to do is you want to get to a place where you just place an order for your SKU and they go and build it. Right. And then they manage making sure that the material comes in on time and they have enough parts of everything. Um, and they'll have likely software tools that help them manage this. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I guess in, in my case, it was a, if it's a, if it's a standardized component that has a defined part number and is just widely available, then I, I, I really don't see any reason why you would want to do source that on your own. For mine, I, for my product, it was mainly some, uh, some customized pieces. Like, you know, there's a couple custom springs and a custom mm-hmm. sheet metal piece that were, uh, that were, custom. So I was, I, I felt like there was some advantage to me managing oh, yeah. that initial relationship and getting the supply, the, getting that, that flowing and then transition over to the manufacturer. Oh, but definitely. Just, definitely. Yeah. And, and for anything custom, you need to uh, figure that out. In my opinion, yeah. um, if you can, if you're lucky, now it's always easier to be 
have an existing relationship, right? So if you're lucky and you work with a, a sizable contract manufacturer, they're going to have what's called like a verified supplier list or, you know, whatever, approved supplier list. Yeah. Um, and so you can go ask them like, hey, like I need to have a custom spring made. And I'm not going to, I don't need you to work with this supplier. I, I just need you to recommend to me anyone that you trust and already doing business with. Um, do you know anyone that makes custom springs? And then you go work with that company to develop your custom part. And then they're already a, a validated supplier for your contract manufacturer. And then when it comes to when the day comes to, you know, syncing those two people together to order your custom parts uh, as needed, it's so much easier. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Sean, do you, um, do you have any uh, thoughts on this? I'll try to get you in the, the conversation. Obviously you'll have your, your turn to share some of your tips, but uh, yeah. so, just see uh, if you have any thoughts on, no, I don't want to leave you uh, sitting there without having a chance to say anything. From, from my point of view, um, you know, like, again, <laughs> I'm sorry, uh, Sean, can you maybe get a try yeah. closer yeah. to the microphone again? From, from my point of view, and again, it depends on what kind of uh, supplier you're looking at. Um, if it's a small to medium one, it might be a good idea to ask them about their revenue and how long they've been in business. That would give you an idea of how stable they are or whether, you know, they just started and then they won't be here tomorrow to support you. So one of the things that you want to see is how stable, or you want to try at least to get an idea of how stable they are and how long they might stay in business or whether you know they are they are like stable or, or reputable or not. Um, that's that's one thing you want to get, you know, just by asking them. And uh, the second thing that you want to ask them, and most large or medium-sized suppliers have a process map or some, some people call it a control chart. That means that they have thought about their own process and they have formalized it into a document. So uh, if uh, a supplier does not have that, it just says that they haven't really gone over the entire process completely and mapped out even their own steps, or they may know how to do it, but it's, the, it's in the collective you know, of the people now, but without any kind of formalization. So if they have a control chart or a process map, that means that they have put it on paper. And and generally what it has, it's a whole bunch of steps from incoming inspection all the way to uh, inventory control, all the way to outgoing inspection and maybe ongoing reliability tests and all that and sampling and all that kind of stuff. And each of these steps will be detailed in that process chart. And then they would say, okay, well, you know, this is what it's done. And, you know, if it doesn't pass, this is how it goes. And, you know, if, if something, uh, a, a process step fails, this is how we handle that, right? So uh, so it's, it's always good to have that. So it says that the supplier is um, very uh, focused on getting, you know, the process and doing it consistently time over time, right? Absolutely. Yeah. In that same vein, John, I think a good thing to check for, and it's in my, you know, my, my uh, list of questions, is um, they should have some sort of ISO certificate, which is like an international standards uh, quality system, mm-hmm. um, and they should be certified by a uh, you know, qualified body, um, and they should be able to provide that. That should be something that they absolutely have. Um, you know, ISO 9001 is a pretty common uh, mm-hmm. one, and there's also ones for like, automotive and uh, medical, um, these are less common, but it depends on their typical customers and their requirements. But uh, yeah, I think a good way to a good way to verify what Sean is talking about is also asking for like a certificate of quality system. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I, I've been through a company that was uh, going through ISO uh, certification, so I, I know it, it. If they have that, then that means they have all their processes really documented well. So that's a that's a that's a great that's a great point and i i think that's a having documented processes or standard operating procedures is really critical for any business that's going to be really efficient at it even for my own business i i'm constantly working on creating standard operating procedures from everything to publishing a blog to publishing a a podcast so that's always going to make any business more efficient if they if they have that down in a procedure that everyone can follow it not only makes it more efficient and quicker but 
less likely for any type of errors to happen if they have a, a process, including a process of making sure that there are no errors that get through. Um, the uh, as far as uh, Sean's comment on the the size of the the company, that's a a really good point. Uh, uh, Mike was kind of saying it from a standpoint of how many lines you have. Uh, Sean was maybe more revenue or how long they've been in business. And I know that it's common to sort of group them into tiers where uh, like, I think tier one is kind of loosely maybe above 5 billion a, a year in revenue. Then you've got tier two, which is maybe 500 million to 5 billion Tier three is 100 million to 500 million, and then tier four is less than 100 million. And I know in the uh, uh, referral section of the academy where we have contract manufacturers, with Mike's help, I, we were, we've got those classified into these different tiers. So that, that kind of gives you at least some upfront estimation on the size of the company. Okay. And a, a, a question I have for both of you is, and um, Sean, you can, you can start first, is, how, how critical do you feel is it to audit the factory? Um, either the, the founders do it, someone from the company, or potentially hiring a third-party service to, to audit the factory? Yeah, you can you can hire a third-party, and there are some, some ones or some of those in China that would give you a complete report. But at the very least, I think you should, uh, someone from, from your side should at least pay a visit, maybe a full audit will be good, but at least pay a visit to the place when you're getting serious and getting ready to start. Reason why I'm saying that is that, you know, it's fairly easy to have a website, to make a website and make it look really good. You can even borrow pictures from other places and stitch it in your website and make it look good, right? But unless you are on site and you see the attitude of the people, um, you know, doing the things that are going to manufacture your product, you won't get a good idea of whether they are really, really serious. Even large companies, right? They have A team and B teams and C teams and all that kind of stuff. You don't know exactly, you know, who you're getting assigned to, whether you're getting assigned to the A team or the or the B or C team. And then there will be a difference in the kind of support and in the kind of seriousness that, they, they give or they, 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 they put onto doing your things, right, you know. So, uh, for example, you can go there and find out that the ESD process is really, like, you know, just in name only, right? Right. Have, <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No way. They can, they can take pictures of equipment and all that. doesn't mean they actually follow what they're preaching, right? So, you know, like, so the only way to actually really, really find this out is to actually be there in person and look and look around and ask questions and talk to the people really involved, right? Yep, totally agree. Yeah, I, th I think that's the best case uh, scenario. But like you mentioned, there are companies that that you can hire to do this. And especially if you're you, to a lot of people listening to this, going to to China and evaluating a factory and uh, or auditing a factory is is something they, they most like may not feel comfortable doing. It's um, obviously it's, you can still go there and get a feel for it and see that it's a real factory and that you can meet the people. And I mean, you can get an idea. Is this a, you know, or is it a nice clean facility and are they, do they, you know, they seem to be following procedures or is it just sort of someone in their, their garage manufacturing your parts. So you can get that kind of feel without any experience. But I guess if you, if you want to, really have a, a more in-depth feel. Um, you could either audit, pay someone to audit them, or um, obviously the, the, the questionnaire that we're talking about here will is going to go a long way in, in answering some of those questions for you. Yeah, I think you should definitely visit. Um, it's my opinion that like hiring a supplier or contract manufacturer is like, it's a little bit like hiring an employee um, without, you know, ever meeting them. Right. So uh, you you probably would never hire someone to work for you to without ever speaking with them or meeting with them first. And that's really the equivalent of visiting a factory. Um, and it, one, it just goes a long way in developing relationships and from a, just a business professionalism. Um, and also I've actually gotten feedback from uh, uh, a supplier I didn't actually end up working with, but it was for like a really, it was, it was for more of a fun project than it was a uh, 
you know, professional project. And, uh, you know, his, his comment to me was, yeah, I basically said like, well, I can't really afford to visit you because this, this was, uh, you know, I don't, I don't plan on doing that much business this first year. So, um, you know, if I'm only going to do, uh, you know, $20,000 in, uh, orders with this person spending $3,500 to go to China for a week is kind of a uh, not well-balanced use of funds. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, immediately that sends a negative signal to them, right? It's like, well, if you, if you can't afford to fly for a few thousand dollars to come visit our factory, can you afford to pay for the order that you just placed? Right. Cause it's like, these are not substantially different quantities of money. Right. So it's sort of a, it, it's, you know, I've had suppliers evaluate my businesses from a financial stability perspective. Um, and if like you, if, if like, you know, cost is like so tight that you can't visit a factory and you're probably not entering the right business. Uh, in my yeah. No, I think that's a valid point right. there. Right. They, when, they, when don't wanna, big, they don't want to mess yeah. with someone that can't pay for orders or won't right. ever actually get an order. So, right. And like the way I think about it is like, think about a scenario where you did place an order for a substantial amount of money and there's a huge major problem. Um, in that scenario, you're most likely going to get on a plane and go figure it out. Right. So, it, 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 you know, it's in your best interest to do that before you, before you do that. Yeah, absolutely. With, with my own product, I, I was kind of fortunate because I, they actually came to me to, to, uh, to meet with me uh, the, the first time, but that was partially because I, I lived in Alaska and I, the, the general manager, the, the factory, I think was wanting a vacation in Alaska. So they kind of worked it out. So they, he visited me and probably did a tax write off, but, but uh, nonetheless, it was a, it was, it was nice to be able to have them uh, come to me and uh, get that uh, initial meeting. Uh, so I don't, that's probably not something that happens very often unless you happen to live someplace that they want to, someone at the factory wants to take a vacation. But uh, yeah. right. um, okay, uh, so, so the general answer is yes to the audit. Um, yes to the visiting the factory at the, at the very least, um, whether or not it's a, a full audit, at least visit the factory. Okay, so we've... Um, so I, I, did you have any other uh, points or questions that you wanted to highlight, Mike? I was going to switch over and, and let Sean uh, do some of the ones he's, obviously he's kind of already mentioned a few of them, I think, in this conversation. But uh, Yeah, I, I, mean, I, didn't, I didn't touch on the plastic manufacturing, but. Um, oh, yeah, 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 let's do that. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so, um, and also this also applies, one of the points about plastic is also applies to electronics as well, but I'll get to that. Um, so yeah, when you're evaluating a manufacturing company to make like a, an enclosure or some sort of part for you that is either manufactured from plastic or metal, um, you're most likely going to work with an injection molding company. It's, it's the highest likelihood that you'd use that technology. Um, and so those companies primarily do uh, two operations. They, they make up plastic parts and they also make tooling that makes the plastic parts. So uh, typically, uh, quick off the top of my head, things that I ask are, uh, first question is, do you make tooling in-house? Um, a lot of molding companies, uh, like for example, domestically in the United States, a lot of them don't make tooling in-house because it's just, uh, it's very cost intensive and there's not a lot of money mm -hmm. to be made on tooling. So they rather be uh, make money on running parts. Uh, that being said, having you know commissioned like 20 something plus injection molds, um, I find it incredibly valuable to work with companies <laughs> that do tooling in-house, mostly because it's faster and they they charge usually less for it. Again, because they're not really trying to make money on the tooling, um, and also any design changes are much faster and simpler when they can, you know, take the tool off of the off of the mold uh, mold base and just bring it right over to their tooling shop and make a change. Um, they take days to make a change as opposed to like weeks to boxing it up and trucking it over to their tooling vendor. So that's like the first question I always ask is like, you know, what, uh, where do you do tooling in-house or not? Um, the second question I usually ask is uh, you know, how many presses do you have and of what sizes? Because this will also, or, and, or you can ask like, what's the smallest part you can make and what's the largest part you can make? Because a lot of companies won't have uh, 
certain presses over a certain size, mm-hmm. which um, a press being is the machine that actually opens and closes the mold and injects plastic into it. Um, and based on tonnage, it's typically the clamping pressure. So that, that usually means like the more, the larger the part, the more pressure you have to push plastic into it. So um, the larger the machine. And that tells you how big of a part you can make. So you can imagine like uh, the, the base of a laptop would be like a pretty, like a medium sized part. Um, you know, uh, a TV would be a large size part. Uh, the bumper for our car would be a very large size part. Um, these are these companies typically split themselves up into uh, large part makers and usually small part makers. That's been my experience. So asking them, you know, how many how many size how many presses they have and what of what sizes that they have tells you what kind of parts they typically make. Um, and if you have really specific uh, requirements. Like, for example, like making like a, an optical part, that would be like a, a question I'd also ask right away is, uh, do you make optical parts like a, a lens or a light guide or something that requires really uh, high precision molding that you, you can't have any defects in? Um, and then um, the last thing I usually ask uh, injection molders is like what sort of secondary operations they are capable of doing. Because um, you'll often find when you design molded parts there's something you have to do to it after you mold it whether it's uh printing like a logo on it that's called like pad printing or screen printing uh or um, maybe you need to have uh, brass inserts uh, heat staked into the the plastic part or maybe you just need to combine two plastic parts together like uh, for example like a cap that has an inner part and an outer part and you want them to just snap them together um, those type of secondary operations to see if they can do those things for you because there's a, a lot of value-added um, services that they can provide typically when they uh, pr- mold the parts. They can kind of do like small sub-assemblies, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. And so like an example, a uh, part that I once designed had uh, an antenna inside of it and they would actually buy the antennas from a supplier that I picked. Um, and then it was actually ultrasonically welded between two pieces of plastic, so it was inseparable. So that was like a, they molded the two pieces of plastic, they bought the antenna, they installed the antenna in one piece, put the other piece on, and then they welded it together. Um, and that was uh, that was all done in the same factory that made the tooling, that made the plastic parts. So secondary operations. And then the last and probably most important thing that I always ask uh, is, do you offer DFM reviews before you place purchase orders? So one of the things you will quickly become aware of when you're designing plastic parts is that injection molders have typically a ton of feedback on your design um, and things that they like or don't like thin walls, thick walls, transitions, radiuses, draft, um, all these things. Uh, There's a lot of work that goes into making those design changes. And if you can do that without having to put out any money, um, that's a huge advantage. So I'd always ask like, Hey, can you guys do a DFM review of my parts before I place an order for tooling? Because I don't really, it just shows a level of interest in your, in your product. Um, and that, that's immensely helpful because um, typically a lot of companies won't help you out until they know that they've won your business. So I usually ask that. And uh, sometimes you get a yes, sometimes you get a no. Um, but uh, they should be able to do that no matter what, even if you have provided the purchase order for the toy, um, you really want them to provide you a full DFM feedback where they look at the draft they give you the parting lines. They tell you where they're going to put gates on the part. They tell you where they're going to put ejector pins on the part. They give you feedback if there's going to be any warp or sink marks or any cosmetic issues. Um, mm-hmm. They should do all that before cutting tooling. And so uh, that's definitely something that I always ask about when it comes to uh, selecting a plastic supplier. Okay. Yeah, those are those are great. Um, I like the suggestion to have the the tooling in-house because like you said there i think most products are going to require some tweaks be done to the mold at some point Mm -hmm. so having the the ability to do that in-house is going to just speed everything up because you find these weeks start to add up after a while of uh, everything taking longer than you think and just communication delays. So anything you can do to, to minimize that, I think is, is really beneficial. So that's, yep. And that DFM feedback is, it applies to electronics as well. Um, Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. The electronics company uh, manufacturer is going to look at your designs and say, Oh, this is going to cause soldering issues or increase this pad size or give me a little bit of more room here or there. Um, (laughs) 
that's uh, that's something that they should do before you build anything. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, for both the, the mold and the electronics, I've found because manufacturers will typically have some engineering department and I found that's and one of the, the, the easier things to get a, a manufacturer to commit to as far as quote investing in your product is to uh, get them to offer some engineering services like this DFM uh, mm-hmm. review, which is what my manufacturer had done, even though it was pretty close to being ready for injection molding. It was obviously designed for injection molding. There were lots of changes that they wanted uh, that required to be done to increase the mold flow and make the wall uniforms, uh, the uh, wall thickness more uniform and such for more even flow. Uh, so that's, that's definitely um, something that's helpful if you can get a manufacturer to, to offer to do that for you. And I, I know it can be expensive. I've had uh, one member of the Academy. He uh, had a, I think it was a manufacturer that he's working with and they wanted to charge him $9,000 to do a DFM analysis on his, on his uh, which I, I encouraged him to not do at this point. Cause he's still nah. really early, early stage. And, and I'm like, yeah, 9,000, that, that's pretty steep for that. I think you can get that done a lot cheaper. So I, I recommended that he, try to maybe find a different manufacturer that doesn't really sound like a manufacturer that's uh, uh they just look like they're trying to make some money off the dfm analysis maybe yeah i call that the no bid quote <laughs> right it's like they don't, they don't want to do the work they don't yeah, want to work yeah but they'll, if you pay them they'll do it right it's, it's like it's not really a good business partnership yeah yeah if you give us enough money then yeah we'll we'll do it but really we're not that interested in it so um Okay, well, those are, those are really good. Um, so we've kind of touched on some of your tips for electronics and some on the enclosure. Uh, obviously, uh, Sean, you're an electrical engineer, so I, I don't. You may or may not have much input on the the mold, uh, no, the, not, the molding process. Often. But obviously, you've done a lot of su- uh, supplier assessments, so I suspect you have experience in all those yeah. areas. So I'll kind of let you go now. Um, thanks for. Uh, uh, being patient <laughs> and yeah. uh yeah so if you could share any other yeah. tips that you have that that you've not mentioned yet that this is yeah, one that, of that the things that, that i'd like to uh you know like uh, you can get into details in the in the questionnaire but initially you should really ask about uh, operator training it's not uncommon for a chinese manufacturer to have someone apply in the morning and by lunchtime that operator is working on your product and your product quality depends on that operator who that same morning didn't know anything about your product and didn't know about, you know, how it worked and how to test it and all that. And now your entire, the entire product quality is just dependent on that one person who didn't know anything about it this morning, right? That same morning, right? So it's, it's always good to ask about their training and how they retrain the operators and you know, like whether they have uh, a, uh, a a formal way of training it, as opposed to you know someone apply in the morning and you just take her on the manufacturing floor and say, here you just do this and do that, and then okay, off you go now, kind of thing. So so it's good to have you know something in writing at least that says yes, we have a formal training method and we have a formal retraining method for all our operators, and you know only. And, and green operators are always paired with someone who can teach them and, and uh, you know, like before they actually are on their own doing your product. Mm-hmm. And also, it's always a good idea to ask about the incoming inspection, you know, and outgoing inspection at the very least, whether they have a formal way of doing that or it's just like, okay, well, you know, the product comes in, I just log it in. And then, you know, it just goes up to the manufacturing line. A lot of companies will have like uh, uh, an incoming inspection area where the product pre-inspection will be in one area and then it will go through inspection and then post-inspection, the product moves to another area that cannot be, that that are physically separated so that, you know, you know at least they have an inspector. (coughs) And also, you know, for for things that cannot inspect in-house, they usually have, and you can ask for traceability like that, certificates of compliance or certificates of acceptance for products or components or assemblies that they 
could not test at incoming inspection, so they have to depend on their suppliers to have done that, and their suppliers therefore should have a certificate of compliance that they ship to their customer that says, yes, we have done that. Same with outgoing inspection, you know, you want to know about the sampling and how the sample, like usually it's an AQL level, that means it depends on the on the lot size, they take a number of samples, or a number of random samples and you check and then if it doesn't pass that many, if it has more failures than is required for the AQL level, then it will fail the entire lot. That's, uh, that's another thing. Again, for outgoing inspection, the same thing. And the other thing, two things, especially for electronics manufacturing that you really want to, to, to have them talked about or at least show you that they have a process is solder paste. One thing is solder paste. Solder paste have to be kept at cold temperatures until use. So a lot of people, they just have that like in writing or as a, you know, but they don't really follow that. Usually it comes in a, uh, a dry ice package and then they put it in the refrigerator and then they take it out in the morning, they activate it and once activated, you have 24 hours. If you don't use that solder paste within 24 hours, the activated solder paste within 24 hours, you have to discard that, right? And some will kind of like, okay, well, it's been 30 or 40 hours. That should still be good kind of thing. So, you know, you won't find anything wrong in the product you get, but reliability will suffer in the long run if you don't have the right soldering done or in, for your product, right? So that's one thing. The other thing is treatment of your PCB. PCB materials will absorb moisture. So first of all, they have to be stored in uh, in a humidity control environment. Second, like, you know, they will oxidize regardless of, of surface treatment and all that. So usually you don't order PCBs like a year in advance and store it before you use it. So you have to make sure that the PCBs are maybe you know bought a month in advance and then you use it um, as you you know like and, and not have it stored in for a long time right and uh, also because even with humidity control and all that they can absorb moisture so what you want them to do is to bake your PCBs especially if you're using like large pots like BGAs and LGAs and all that what will happen otherwise is when it goes through the uh, reflow um, oven, the PCB will warp and will actually crack your your solder joints, right? Because of the escaping steam or escaping humidity kind of thing. So you want uh-huh. them to bake the PCB first. You want them to have a process for doing that, to bake your PCB first, to drive out the moisture before it goes through the wave soldering. So that's another thing. Of course, ESD is important. You just want them to at the very least say that they have a regular ESD testing and regular operator training, which is just as important as the testing, the operator has to be trained properly to you know, treat ESD as being a, uh, a very serious matter and not something that, you know, after the training, you're all done. And uh, so these are the, like, you know, of course, you, you want them to have uh, work instructions posted so that the operator can refer to them or standard operating procedures posted so that the operator can can, uh, so that that's all signs. These are all signs of a good manufacturer, right? Yep, I agree. Yeah, the, yeah, definitely. Those are those are good. Um, uh, a, a couple, uh, I guess, questions or clarifications is on the inspection. So, just for anyone listening, so incoming inspection, you're talking about just inspecting the components that will be used in the in the final product. So, I'm curious, what would be? Let's just say it's a uh, you know, it's not a, a custom uh, component, but let's just say it's a microcontroller, an STM32 microcontroller chip. What what type of inspection would they do for something like that? Okay. Oh, first of all, they would inspect a lot to make sure that they have no issues with, you know, like misplaced components or, you know, usually it would come in real and all that. They make sure that, you know, all the uh, properly. And second, all of these have, you know, like uh, storage requirements, motion, humidity requirements, because they, those chips can also be. So in that case, because they cannot really test anything, right? 
they would rely on a certificate of compliance from their suppliers that says, you know, this product has been tested and these are my incoming limits and you know, this lot specifically now would be logged and say we have received this lot and you know, this quantity in this log and uh, so that in the end when your product is done when uh, you know if ever you have an issue they can trace it back to you know like yes that issue was with this lot of uh, scm32 microcontrollers so your exposure to the issue now is now limited to this window like two days or whatever that we use this and you have actually like x number of uh, boards that were made using components from this lot and that's your that's the extent the maximum extent of your exposure right Mm -hmm. so when you if you have well, heaven forbid, if you have something that went wrong with the board and you do failure analysis and you found out that because for some reason the processor, you know, you want them to be able to trace back to, yeah, this incoming inspection lot, we will save like something like 4,000 or whatever on that day and it was inspected and this was a manufacturing lot and it went into production on that date and it was used up on that day. So now you know the extent of your exposure, and then you can decide from a business point of view whether you want to recall the product or just you know, let people make claims, right? So, but you need to have the data to allow you to make that decision, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And trace, traceability is incredibly valuable. Yeah. You won't, yeah. you won't yeah. find it at every manufacturer, but like one manufacturer I've worked with, um, you know, they, they would serialize every single PCB. Yes. And, and it would have a barcode on it. And they're, it was actually really cool. Their SMT lines, they actually, they barcode up the raw panels. And uh, they didn't ever make a mistake loading the wrong SMT program because the barcode on the raw panel would lo- tell the SMT machine to load up the right assembly program. And so all they had to do was just feed it boards and it would pull up the right program, put the parts on it. It would set up, it would put all the parameters into the oven, all that stuff. Um, so it was incredibly valuable. And then anytime like an operator was at the SMT machine, they had to like scan their badge. And if ever, if anyone ever made a mistake, like if there was bad parts, I could say, Hey, I have circuit board number three, four, seven. And uh, they would go, okay, let me look that up. Okay. You know, John was on the SMT machine that day. We built 800 units. Uh, the five reels of capacitors that we used on that run were these. And uh, they would go tell me what are the other boards that might have those bad capacitors. And then uh, we would go and quarantine those parts, but, you know, those finished built boards, and then maybe do some more testing and inspection on them. Or we would know what units those went into out in the field, and we'd, we'd get them back. Um, so traceability can be enormously valuable because you're always going to have some issues and minimizing the issue, the impact to other parts that may have similar problems is really valuable. Yeah. I think anytime, uh, obviously it's always best if you can catch an issue earlier on in the process, it's much better to catch a, an issue with the component when it, when it's incoming and through the incoming inspection than it is for that to make it on your board and make it to the final assembled part. And then, testing there, the part ends up failing. And now you've used a bad part and uh, actually, you know, manufactured the product with a bad part. So it's much better if you just catch that issue with the part much earlier on before it goes through all that, that, that process. And you just end up wasting the, or scrapping uh, the entire board or the product or having to go back and rework it. Um, Okay, great, great. Um, Do you, um, uh, Mike, do you have any other comments or anything on anything that uh, Sean, any of the things that he had listed, you kind of touched in on a, a couple? Uh, no, I think um, no, that's, I think it's pretty no, good. No, I'm good too. Yeah, for now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, great. Um, I think this has been really good. I, I can't thank you uh, both enough uh, for, for coming on and um, sharing this. It's a, a really important topic for every, you know, everyone listening to this at some point. Hopefully, if you get to that point that you're going to have to evaluate suppliers and manufacturers, so this is going to be really good. And then the, the questionnaire, obviously, uh, I'll be putting that together in the next week or so, that, so that will be available uh, for members as well. Uh, before we uh, end the call, do you, um, uh, uh, Sean, do you want to maybe tell people how they can uh, 
find you or learn more about you? I, I assume maybe LinkedIn is the, the best yeah, way. Yeah, LinkedIn is fine. Or, you know, like just send me a private message on the Academy and then I'll, uh, I'll provide you with, you know, links and all that and you can talk. Obviously. Okay, great, great. Yeah, I'll, I'll be sure and include your LinkedIn uh, profile yeah. link uh, in, in the, the show notes for this. And uh, yeah, so he's always in the... Uh, in the, the forum answering questions. Uh, so yeah, always feel free to, to reach out to Sean there or Mike as well. Um, uh, Mike, how do you, um, how, yeah, how can people LinkedIn find out or you? Yeah, same LinkedIn, or you can hit me up on the Academy direct message or just tag me in a post and happy to help. Gotcha. And I'll, I'll also include a, a link to your, your, your startup, which I, I know you're, you're still on the board, but you're not actively, you're not in that startup anymore at sure. your tech, but I'll, I'll yep. definitely uh, throw a leak on there so people can learn more about the, the company that you co-founded. So, Okay, well, thank you both so much for doing this. Uh, you both have such a, a wealth of knowledge in this area. So uh, thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it. That's it for today. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of the Predictable Designs podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then definitely check out the hardwareacademy.com where you can get support from myself and other experts to help you successfully get your product developed and on the market. We have experts in electronics design, enclosure design, prototyping, certifications, manufacturing, marketing, startups, and sales. You even get private one-on-one consulting directly with me. The Hardware Academy also includes a highly active and incredibly helpful community of other hardware entrepreneurs with a wide range of experience and skills. No longer do you have to go at it all alone. Now you have a community of experts on your team. You'll also get regular in-depth training courses, workshops, product teardowns, and resources to help you succeed with your product. Finally, you get access to my list of recommended developers, suppliers, and manufacturers. Check out the Hardware Academy today at thehardwareacademy.com.